as we looked last week at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes, verses 1 to verse 12, we looked at the inner attitudes that are to characterize the individual that is a part of the kingdom of God, citizens of God's kingdom, which Jesus has come to really usher in and, and bring in now. Here we are at the beginning of uh you know, Jesus' public ministry in Matthew, where he starts off here now with this great sermon that Jesus gives, a sermon on the mount, and Jesus is really instituting here the constitution for the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting is as believers in Christ, we're not just destined to be a part of the kingdom in some future way. This is not something we just look forward to. Rather, we are citizens of the kingdom right here and now because Jesus is reigning in our lives. And so this is something we get to see before us, not just in a future way, which is gonna be glorious, but even right now. And so what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is laying out for us this kingdom way for all of us here and how we're to live. And these inner attitudes are not just to be something that we keep within. Because the Beatitudes looked at how we're to, you know, come to the Lord and, and this work that's being done in our lives. But when we come to the Lord, this is not something that just is to stay inwardly. I think a lot of times we as Christian lives, uh, as Christian people think, you know, well, we just want to live our lives kind of just in, in secret. You know, want to be, you know, CIA members, Christian in anonymity, right? And it's like we just want to, you know, kind of keep it for ourselves. This is not meant to be kept for ourselves. That'd be, you know similar to a person finding a cure for cancer and then going, well, you know what? I just wanted to keep that for me. I just want everybody to be on their own journey and just kind of find things out for themselves. I didn't want to impose anything on anybody. No, we'd be jumping out with this answer and cure and help for people. We'd be quick to share that. And yet, interesting how we've got something even better than the cure for cancer, and yet how often we just kind of tend to conduct our lives as though there's no real difference in our lives as compared to those in the world, and yet there actually should be. And Jesus is laying that out for us here as we move into this next section on the Sermon on the Mount, because these inner attitudes of the Beatitudes are to propel us now to live differently in this world that we find ourselves in. So he begins looking at salt and light. Look at verse 13 again. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So Jesus says there, you're the salt of the earth. Now, that's interesting. Somebody could read that and go, is Jesus saying a, a good thing for us? Is this a negative? Like, I don't know how to tell you that because you call somebody, you, you tell somebody they're you're very salty. They're gonna be like, hey man, I don't like that. That's not a, that's not a, positive thing. That's not, you know, a good thing to be called. We think about Lot's wife that was turned to a pillar of salt when she looked back, and we think, oh man, is this a good thing to be salt of the earth? Well, Jesus is definitely meaning this in a positive. It's important that we look at kind of the context of the day and what salt meant to people in this day, because it can mean a whole lot more than it does to us today. Salt was actually a very valuable commodity. Some Roman soldiers would be paid in salt, and that's where we get the expression, this person is not worth his salt because this was something that you could actually use almost as, as a currency in this day. Salt had a few different functions in this time. First of all, number one, it was a preservative. 
So in a time when he didn't have the luxuries of electricity and plugging a fridge or a freezer in to kind of keep your food from spoiling, they would rub salt on their meat. Their meat would be covered in salt and it would preserve it from rotting and from putrefying. Now in the same way then, when Jesus says, you are salt of the earth, we recognize that we're to have a, a purifying quality to our lives. We're to be functioning in a way where we are preserving the things of God in this world. Because you just have to look around, not far, but you see the kind of evil and wickedness that's happening in our world around us. Many people are not just turning away from God, but are becoming real enemies of God and anything that's associated with God. People are wanting to just dismiss and, and put away with a great rage, actually. So we see things turning against the things of the Lord. And what we find is, as people are turning away from the Lord, are they experiencing things getting better in their lives? Are things more enjoyable to them? Are they at more peace? No. People are as in a, in a rage and, and hostile as, as ever today because we've dismissed the things of God. And yet as Christians now, we recognize that there's a role that we play in that. And we're to be preserving the things of God in this age that we live in, in the world around us. God has us, the church, active in the world to be a preserving agent, to be upholding the very truths of God that will arrest the decay of culture. So salt is very good as a preservative, which again applies to us and how we're to be living in this world. Secondly, salt adds flavor. You've all experienced having a meal that you're like, oh man, this needs some salt. What does that mean? It means this meal is very bland. There's like, there's no taste. I need something to pop in my mouth here. I need something. So you throw a little bit of salt on there and now just the flavors begin to burst, right? As believers, well, we're to be very flavorful in this world. We have the life because Jesus is the life. And, and we should be those that are just popping with, with flavor to where others around us are taking note and going, hey man, what's causing you to be just filled with joy? That's such hope in the world. Because again, people in this world are not experiencing a lot of hope, a lot of contentment or a lot of joy with the things of the world. They're, they're dining off of and drinking from the fountains of this world that are, are not gonna satisfy. And it's gonna leave them empty. And we've got something that they're, they're looking for. They know apart from God, there's something lacking. They don't know exactly what that is, but they're trying to fill that with other things that always come up dry, always come up bland, always come up empty. And as believers, we need to be living our lives in a way now where we're interacting with people and living in a way that's so distinctly different than what they're experiencing to where they're going, man, I need a little bit of what you've got there. You need to shake some of that my way here. That's how we should be conducting ourselves in this world. And it, it's sad when we see believers walking around discouraged, bummed out, and sometimes because of what they're seeing in this world. But we have to keep in mind, we're not living for this world. This world is very temporal. Our hope is not in the things of this world. We're not expecting it to be all, you know, going our way and everybody to rally around in support of the church or we're not expecting that to happen in this world. So don't get discouraged when you don't see things playing out that way. Recognize that 
as this world gets more and more evil, well, that means the Lord is due soon. The Lord is coming soon. And so as believers, our hope is not in those things. Our hope is in the Lord. We're living with an eternal perspective, not a, a worldly perspective. So as believers, we have reason to be filled with joy and hope and peace and to live so distinctly different that we're adding flavor to other people where they're going to say, man, send some of that my way here. I need a little bit of that. It's going to point people to Jesus. Now, what happens now when you have something that's very salty, you eat something, it promotes thirst. When you eat something very salty, you're like, man, I need a drink of something here. Whew. I need something. And again, that associates very well with how we're to be living. Because it's to be the result of the Christian in the world. We're to be living in a way where others are realizing, I'm a little bit dry. Man, I, I, I've seen this flavor added, but what I need to do now to quench this dryness, this thirst within. And we get to point them to the, the living waters. We get to point them to Jesus Christ. By which he says, if anyone thirsts, I'm coming to me. And I'll give them living waters. It's going to flow out to them. And so we get to show people the way now that they can have that, that thirst quenched and satisfied. Because again, nothing in this world is going to satisfy. It's only found in Jesus. Is your life causing others to say, man, that, that is what I want and I, I crave for my life. Hanging around this Christian has made me realize I've got a hankering for something that isn't being satisfied from the things of this world. So as we see, salt is very effective. And it's how we're to be conducting our lives in this world as people that are citizens of the kingdom. We have a role to play here now. But there's a couple of things else that salt is very effective in. Salt is an irritant. How many of you know when you, you know, walk into the ocean, salt water, suddenly you got like a cut, a scrape on your leg or something, and you don't even know it's there, all of a sudden that salt water hits it, you're like, whoa, man, that stings. It's an irritant. And sadly, as Christians, sometimes that's how we come across, but not always in a bad way, because there's going to be conviction that people are feeling. When they see what's going on in our lives, there's something that starts to irritate them. It starts to unsettle them because they start to see, man, I'm, I'm missing something here. How come I don't have the hope and the joy that this, this person has? And it provides that irritant by which now they start to see that, again, it's not, it's not to condemn them, but to convict them. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that's hitting them, making them realize that there's something lacking in their lives that they so desperately need. But now that same ocean water, funny enough, not only an irritant, but it's also a great healing agent. Because, man, that might sting for a second, but it's that same salt water that's going to eventually bring about uh, a more rapid healing. You got a sore throat, what do you do? You gargle with salt water. That's what you're told, at least. I don't, I don't like to do that, but it's supposed to help. I've done it a few times. <clears throat> but you gargle salt water because, again, it's a healing agent for you. And again, that's what we get to provide for people now. We get to be a preserving agent. We get to add flavor, promote thirst. And yeah, it might irritate people, but ultimately it's to lead them to what they desperately need. The healing touch of Jesus, the forgiveness of sin. And to have a life that's made right and made new in and through the transforming work of Jesus Christ. 
that's what role we get to play in this world. Now, Jesus is so wise in using salt as an example of what a Christian should be like. But as Jesus said, salt can end up losing its flavor. And if so, how is it going to be seen? It's, it's going to be good for nothing but to be tram- thrown down the path and trampled over. Salt can end up losing its flavor. But here's the thing. Salt, sodium chloride, is a very stable chemical compound. In other words, it doesn't just lose its flavor on its own. It doesn't just sit on a shelf and get stale and say, oh, it's lost its saltiness. That doesn't happen. It only loses its saltiness when other things are added to it, things that will, things that will contaminate things that will mix with it that are impure. And same with us here. We're not talking about now, you know, salvation. We're talking about our effectiveness in the world. And our effectiveness in the world will begin to diminish if we begin to see too much of the world getting into us. If we allow the things to begin to contaminate, begin to wash away now, again, that effective witness Again, we're not trying to be those that fit in with the world. We're trying to stand out and be different than the world. Too often we get, I think, get caught in this mindset that if we're going to win people, we got to be like them. We got to do everything the world does and draw them in that way. The world's already doing those things. And they're going, this doesn't help. They need to see something different. Are we being that witness? Or is the world just trampling this testimony down as though it has no value? There's no difference. See, again, that happens when the church ceases to be the church. When the church stops standing up for the truth and and even being afraid to speak the truth, lest they think that people are going to dismiss them or turn them away. Oh, that's too harsh. That's too strong. And sadly, we've seen church. I mean, this has been all too common throughout church history. But all the more in, in recent times, how sad it's been to see the, the church begin to change so quickly on strong doctrines they've held to say, well, you know what? We just want people to accept us. We want to go along with the world's, you know, agendas and the world's ideas so that people will just see that we're loving and kind. And yet doing so at the dismissal of truth and what's really going to help people. We've allowed impurities in, and so much of the witness of the church has been lost in this day. But understand, salt is going to make a difference. Christians are to make a difference. Don't let things in that's going to defile, compromise, and corrupt who we are to be for Jesus. There should be something different about us, and that's okay. But let it be cause for people to say, man, I want some of that. I need some of that. And let it be reason to point them to Jesus. You could say there's, there's two reasons why people don't turn to Jesus. One is that they've never met a Christian. And two, they have met a Christian. And sadly, there's a, a lot of Christians that don't stand out, or, or in fact, they live in hypocrisy. They live in a way that is not truly being that salt and light in the world. And not only do they not have an effective witness, but they're having a bad witness. And they're turning people away rather than drawing them in. What kind of Christian are you choosing to be? What kind of effect are you having on others? Because as citizens of the kingdom, we're to be having an effect. 
Jesus goes on to say another effect that we're to have, verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, let me point out a couple things here for us. Because Jesus says there in verse 13, you are, and here in verse 14, you are. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. But can you just see what's being emphasized? You. And, and he's saying that it's written in the emphatic, and it's written in the plural, meaning he's saying you, all of my followers, and nobody else, you are salt, and you are light. Notice he doesn't say, you will be, or, hey guys, you can be. He says, you are. This is who you are now, simply by your faith in Jesus Christ, by your identity in Christ. Not something that you need to achieve, not something you need to strive for. There's no course to take, no mentorship program to achieve this. It's the reality for you presently who are in Jesus Christ. You are salt and you are light. And you are to have an effect in this world. Don't think you're off the hook now and that this is just reserved for the super spiritually elite or just the pastoral team of the church. That's just their job to be salt and light. No, Jesus calls all of us and doesn't call us to be. He says that you are. So shake and shine, people. That's what we're called to do. Every day we wake up, we get to say, Lord, help me to be salt and light. Help me today to be conducting my business in a way where I'm, I'm shaking and shining for you, Jesus. I'm letting that salt be poured out and having its effect. I'm causing that light to shine into the darkness, Lord. Help me today to be who you've already called me and said that I am. I'm salt and I'm light. He's not emphasizing something to do. He's emphasizing how we are to be. And you see, when you live out those attitudes in the Beatitudes, you're going to be affecting your surroundings like salt affects food and how light affects darkness. And, and to say, I mean, this is amazing. For Jesus to say, you are the light of the world. Well, it's amazing because in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. So you think, well, Jesus, you're the light of the world. How can I be light of the world? That's your, that's your thing. Well, again, that's the point is that Jesus is the light of the world and we're just simply to be reflecting his light. This isn't a light that we need to try to drum up and muster up and try to produce in and of ourselves. This isn't something we do just by, you know, trying to perform good works. This is just something that is a natural byproduct, just being with Jesus. Being close to Jesus is your proximity with Jesus in a, in a way where that light is just reflecting off of you. And your light is simply his light that's shining in and through you. See, he's called us to be a city placed on a hill. A city placed up on a hill is, is noticeable. I mean, you see it. The light is there. You don't have a light just to go and hide under a basket. You don't turn on a light and say, now let's cover that up. There's no point for that. You turn on a light to let it shine. And that's what we're called to do. Let us pause and Sing that song, this little light of mine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Okay, good job. Well done. All right. The other services didn't bite on that. You guys, you guys did good. All right. I was, I mean, as a kid, I grew up with these songs, right? And as a kid, I'm like, I, I have no idea what this means, but okay. Do I have to carry like a Bic lighter with me now everywhere I go and turn on my light? I don't know what that meant, but 
Now I do. It's good. I'm, I'm there now. It's all good. But verse 16, Jesus says here, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now that's, that's important here. Because an important thing we need to recognize is that shining our light is not meant for any kind of self-promotion. This is not about us. We're not putting the spotlight on us to show, hey everybody, look at how great I am. Look at all these good works that I'm doing. Aren't I such a wonderful Christian? We're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing this for the glory of God. Christians need to conduct themselves in a way where all that they're doing and the way that they're living is simply, again, reflecting that goodness of God. Our good work should cause people to give thanks to God because they see the one behind it all. They're seeing the one that's produced it, that's brought this life together to shake and shine, to be salt and light. They see the one that's done all this and it's caused to give glory to God. Good, work, good works aren't done because we're good people, guys. Good works are done because we're transformed people. God has done the good work of saving us, redeeming us. He's giving us, given us life in his son by the forgiveness of our sins. So the spotlight gets put on God and not ourselves. So when someone says, hey, why are you, why are you so kind? Why are you so joyful? Why are you so helpful? Don't let it be cost to say, well, it's just, you know, kind of person I am. I'm just such a good person, you know, just naturally there. No, it's cost to say, because God has been so good to me. So we function in a way that that light is shining to where God gets the glory, where it's evident that it's only because of him. It's so outside of us. He gets all the glory for it. So we've seen Jesus revealing again how these inner attitudes are to be reflected in an outward way. But again, recognizing now where he takes us next, that it's not through outward actions that make us right with God. So look at what we see now in verse 17 as we look at law and righteousness. It says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, <clears throat> understand, as Jesus comes to institute the constitution of the kingdom as he does in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not coming to institute a new system or even a new religion. And this kingdom way did not cause the Old Testament to become obsolete. See, a lot of people like to claim today that, you know, they, they, they'll challenge the, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture. They'll, they'll wonder if the Word is really all that it's, you know, said to be. And, and many will look at the Old Testament as just old. Like, it's, it's passe. It's no longer for us. In fact, you got popular pastors today that many love to watch online that will say, we need to, you know, un unhook ourselves from the Old Testament. And that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he's come to do. Some will claim, you know, I'm just, I'm a red letter Christian. I just follow the words of Jesus. Jesus didn't talk about this, didn't talk about that, so we don't need to talk about that. We don't need to address that either. And they'll dismiss everything else that the word says about those subjects. Some will say, oh, I just follow Paul's words. He's the guy that really, you know, uh, saw the church come into play. And so we just follow Paul's words. That's what's more relevant for us. And, and people are just picking and choosing 
like it's a buffet line, what they want for their own theology and doctrine. And they're not taking the whole word of God together. But please catch what Jesus says here. He didn't come to dismiss, destroy, or discredit the scriptures. And, and you see, when he says um, the law and the prophets, as we, as we see right, uh, right up here, law of the prophets, what he's meaning by that is he's encompassing the whole Old Testament scriptures in that that was a, a way of just summarizing all of the Old Testament scriptures. The law and the prophets. So here's what Jesus is meaning by that. And what he's saying is, I didn't come to destroy that, but I came rather to fulfill it. And by fulfilling it, it again doesn't mean that it's now unnecessary or that it's null and void. No, the Old Testament is still very relevant because the Old Testament was all pointing ahead to the promised Messiah. And there's great promises, there's great pictures that we have in the Old Testament that are, are important and relevant and encouraging for us today. It's not null and void. Jesus came to fulfill it, though, because it's all pointing to him. And so the Old Testament is really looking ahead of Jesus, going all the way back to Genesis 3. The Proto-Evangelium, the, the first mention of the gospel right there. J.C. Ryle says that the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud, and the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. It's a good way of putting it. In fact, Jesus says this word... All the scriptures are so solid that not even the minutest part of it is ever going to pass away before all is fulfilled. Now, jot, uh, in the Greek, that's iota. We use that term sometimes. Oh, not one iota. That means just the smallest part. And it's kind of equivalent to the Hebrew letter, yod, which is kind of written this way, in a sense. And that yod was the smallest letter in the Hebrew letter. It says not one jot is going to pass away, not one tittle. And a tittle was just like another little pen stroke, kind of like uh, used even as an apostrophe. Uh, it separated different letters in the Hebrew alphabet very minutely. It's kind of like R-O and R-Q. One little line in there makes the difference, right? That's kind of like a tittle. And Jesus says, nothing of that, the smallest part of these scriptures is ever going to pass away before all is fulfilled. In fact, Jesus says in Luke uh, 16, verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Meaning it's, it's never going to fail. It's always going to be uh, applicable and, and relevant. There's never been and never will be any error or failing in God's word. Peter says that the word of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord for that. So Jesus says, this is all going to be fulfilled. It's, it's reliable. It's dependable. Is trustworthy. We never have to doubt or question the word of God. And you're going to see that happen more and more in these days that we live. People are going to turn from the word. They're going to have reason to kind of excuse and, and explain away passages of the scripture as not being true or real for us. But Jesus says otherwise. The word is trustworthy, my friends. We need to depend upon it. And then Jesus says in verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So in seeing the, the validity and the solidness of God's word, Jesus next lays out the relation to it, or the relation it's to have now to the believer. First and foremost, the believer is to obey it. And not just a part of it, 
Again, not meant to be that buffet. You just kind of pick and choose. No, you're to apply all of it. And whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, he says, and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, remember, he's, he's speaking now and addressing some of the things about the scribes and the elders, or the scribes and the Pharisees, as we'll see in verse 20. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were these religious leaders that others looked at as kind of like the, the pinnacle of, of righteousness. These guys had it all together. But again, they were now looking to apply the law of God into the minutest ways. They would, they would break down the law and the interpretation of the law and say, well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? And they'd make all these different, you know, sub points from it and all these different traditions that they ended up, you know, having recorded down, making the Mishnah. The Mishnah was all these different traditions and interpretations of the law. Ended up being like a book of about 800 pages in English. And so this became very huge. They kind of complicated the law. But they thought, if we do all these things, we're going to be righteous but yet Jesus says, you know what? You might think you're, break, you're, you're doing all these great things, but you just break one part of it. It's as though you've broken all. James says that. If you try to live by the law and you break one part of the law, you, you've broken it all. And again, the law was given simply for us to see that we were in need of, of help. The law is not bad, guys. Let's, let's be clear about that. The law is not bad. We don't write off, we don't, again, we don't, uses to say the Old Testament is no longer relevant to us. The law is not bad. I like, I'm very okay with thou shall not murder. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not steal. I'm good with those things. The law is good, right? It's just that if we try to live by the law and think that the law will bring us into a right standing with God, we're mistaken. The law was given so that it would point out our need for a savior, that it would show our sin and that we were unable to live up to God's standard of righteousness. That's what the law does. So the law is not bad. The law is good. But see, the Pharisees and the scribes were thinking, I can live by the law and I'll be right with God. And yet Jesus says, if you break just even one of the least of these commandments and you teach others too, and they were doing so, well, now you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus means there is not that, you know, you'll be in the kingdom, but you're going to be, you know, it's like, you think now living in this world that you're like at the top. Jesus is saying, no, you're actually at the bottom and you're in need of help here. You're bottom of the barrel. You're not cream of the crop. You're bottom of the barrel. That's what he's saying to these because they're teaching others to do these things. But yet he who does them and teaches them who follows obediently with God's word is going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. So he says in verse 20, this is again showing us that we cannot fulfill the law by ourselves. Verse 20 says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. I, I can just imagine people sitting, listening to the sermon, hearing those words thinking, oh my goodness. Well, what hope do I have now? Because again, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were seen as the real righteous bunch. And they start out, well, not all of them are bad. But Jesus had to confront them. They're in Matthew at their hypocrisy. And we'll see that in a later study. All of them are bad, but many of them were living thinking that I can be right with God by what I do. And again, like we saw, so many of them were doing these things to be seen by men and for their own praise, not 
to the glory of God as we saw in verse 16. So I'm sure the crowds are whispering under the breath, how is this possible? How are we going to achieve entrance in the kingdom of heaven if our righteousness has to be as great as this or exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? It's impossible, and that was Jesus' point. You're right. And it's impossible, Jesus is saying, because they're doing their works out of a self-righteous act. They're thinking that their righteousness is earning their way in. But righteousness would not come through outward acts or through some kind of self-promotion. They needed to go. Here's what Jesus means here by this. It needs to exceed it. It needs to go beyond what the Pharisees and scribes strive for. And they needed an internal righteousness. The righteousness of God, which comes through Jesus Christ. It's not by outward acts. It's a work given to us through Jesus. And it comes internally internally, that now gets to be expressed externally as being salt and light in the world. But that righteousness, we don't earn our way by being salt and light. We're salt and light because Jesus has given us his righteousness internally. Remember, the poor in spirit was all about recognizing our spiritual poverty, that we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to bring to the table to say, oh, I deserve the kingdom. No, we're poor in spirit. We're we're spiritually in poverty. We need help. The Pharisees and the scribes thought that they were good because of their observance of the law. But again, it's a self-righteousness. And we fall in that same mistake when we think we're earning our way to heaven by what we do. And so our righteousness needs to go beyond that of the religious leaders. It needs to go beyond that of just an outward works. And it needs to be one that comes to us internally. Not greater in degree, but greater in kind. Not self, but Christ's righteousness, which is given freely to all that confess their sin and turn to Jesus as the one that forgives, as the one that makes them clean and new and makes them righteous. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that righteousness comes to us through Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus has shown. It needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Not in degree, but in kind. Not by works, but by that free gift of Jesus Christ. By your faith in Christ. By your acknowledgement of your need for forgiveness and for life. Jesus is pointing to us a righteousness of the heart. And it's based on what he provides for us freely. And so Jesus is going to go on now in the next um, passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll get to next week. Don't worry. We'll get to it next week. He's going to begin to go through some of the laws and point out these commandments that they've all been thinking, oh, I'm right because I observe these things, but he's going to take it to a different kind now and show that it's a matter of the heart. God's true intent to the law was always about the heart. And he's going to show the people hear that the law goes beyond just outward acts. It matters what's going on in the heart. That's where Jesus will take us next. And I pray again that as the worship team comes, that you know today that your hearts are right with God. Is your heart right with God today? Are you depending on religion? Are you depending on outward acts? 
Are you depending on a self-righteousness that you think is going to give you favor with God? Because Jesus says, it needs to go beyond that. Right standing with God doesn't come by what you do. It comes by what has been done for you. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for you. Died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He, he rose again to give life and life eternally. The question is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you turned from leaning on yourself and trusting in yourself to say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you alone because my righteousness will never earn me a right standing with God. I need Christ's righteousness, which he gives freely to all who come to him in faith and say, I want to give my life to you, Jesus. I want to seek forgiveness of sin and receive your life for me. If you've never done that before, whether you're watching online, in the overflow, or in this room here today, if you've never done that, I want today to be the day that you get your heart right with God and you get your life right with God. Again, there's, it's not a big thing that you need to go through a process. This is a decision you make right here now in a moment to say, Jesus, I want to turn my life to you. I want to receive forgiveness of sin that has separated me from God. I want to be made right with God now through that forgiveness of sin. And I want that righteousness of Christ now put into my life that I can be right with God. If you've never done that before, I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner and I've been separated from you because of that. I want to turn from my sin, repent from it. I want to turn away and I want to turn to you, Jesus. And I want to put my faith and my trust in you as the one that forgives me. And I ask you to come and be my Lord and my Savior. Take my life, I give it to you. Be my life today. And if you pray a simple prayer like that, the Bible says that you are now a child of God. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away, build all things have become new. And if you prayed that today, would you come and let me know or those that will be available in the front for prayer? If you're watching online, email us at the church because we would love to share more with you about this exciting new life in Christ. A life that's meant now, again, to be lived in the righteousness of Christ internally, but an internal work that's to make a difference outwardly now in the world that we live in as we shake and shine for Jesus, as we are salt and light. Let us go forth being the people that God has shown us already to be as people in Christ, all right?